Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side and the truth. Which Kelly are you? Edward. People call me Ned. I photograph what my conscience asks me to. Ned, they want to have him in the movie! Mad Max 2. It's my kind of movie. Shut up! Shut up! Your friend can't come back, Sarge. Oh, he's disabled, I'm this carer. You're blind. He's an equal opportunity employer. The kids who are sick cannot do the hip-hop anymore. And welcome to another episode of The Curb, the podcast that takes a look at Australian culture, film, everything in between, and puts it out there in the world. This podcast is proudly recorded in the lands of Wajak people of Perth region, and I pay respects to the elders, both past, present, and emerging. Every so often there's a film that kind of uh, sits on my radar that I watch out for for a long period of time, and then pops on up and I watch it and I fall in love with it, and I feel like I need to share it with the world. And... Years ago, Mike Brook, who I interviewed for his documentary about Steve Kilby, and at the end of the interview, we were talking about other artists and musicians that deserve to have a documentary made about them. And I was lamenting the fact that David McComb and the Triffids had not had a documentary made. And he revealed then that there was one in the works. And now, years later, uh, through a very long working cycle, Jonathan Alley has brought out the documentary Love in Bright Landscapes. And Jonathan is the person who I interviewed today, and he is absolutely brilliant interview. Uh, I'll go more on the interview in just a second. Uh, but he notably uh, did interview David way back when in the early 90s and for his uh, solo album, Life of Will. And we touch on that in this particular interview. So he has had a, a uh, relationship with the Triffids in some regard. Um, and we kind of sway in and out the history of David and the Triffids in this particular interview. But most notably, what we touch on is the importance of the Triffids and the importance of David's writing and what it means uh, to one another. Um, For me, the Triffids are a band which I came to in, well, I know exactly when I came to them. It was in 2004. I was introduced to them in a uh, small bedroom in a friend's flat at the time. Uh, I Foolishly, while I had loved a lot of great Australian bands, uh, for some reason I'd never heard of the Triffids. I was introduced to them through Born Sandy Devotional, and from then on I became addicted. Uh, David's writing really transforms how I view Western Australia and how I view Perth, and has helped um, mend a relationship that I have felt was kind of conflicted with the state itself and with it being Australia itself and has uh, allowed me to kind of look at Australia through different eyes. I touch on that in this particular interview, which you'll hear in a moment, Um, but I just also want to touch on the fact that we talk about something that I've contemplated for a while, which is something that I think that a lot of us interviewers and people in the media might reflect and not really think about um, when we're interviewing people. But the more that we do interviews, the more that we talk to people, uh, the higher the chance that the person that we're talking to might not be around for much longer. And I mentioned this in this particular interview that I interviewed the actor and writer and all-round great guy, Damien Hill, uh, just weeks before he passed away. And 
And of course, uh, Jonathan interviewed David. And now the difference is that he interviewed David years before David passed away. But I was curious about the impact of somebody's death on the interviewer as well. I don't know if that's anything that somebody, that the audience, the listeners think about uh, when we do these things. I don't know at all. Um, But it's something that I think about quite a bit because the relationship between the interviewer and the interviewee um, can sometimes change uh, throughout time. Uh, Usually we do these kinds of interviews as a promotional tool, just like this particular one here. Live in Bright Landscapes is a promotional tool. We're we're here uh, to promote the film and you really should see this film. Uh, Even if you don't know the Triffids, I highly recommend it. But I think that the thing is, is that that kind of relationship can change depending on what the relationship of the discussion is like. Now, I don't know if I've mentioned this before. I feel like I have. But when I do these interviews, I don't have a series of questions written down. I just kind of see where the conversation is going to go. I feel that a fair few interviewers do this. Um, We have a few dot points that we actually want to touch on. But we want to see where the, the conversation will go and carry us. And with this particular discussion with Jonathan, I feel that it's carried me and him through some very interesting points. Uh, I really enjoyed this discussion. And if not for the fact that uh, I literally went from interview to interview to interview, I interviewed Eric Thompson. And then I've also interviewed uh, Jonathan Alley today. And then I went straight from this interview straight into an interview with Hannah No, which uh, is coming out in a few days' time. And so, if it weren't for the fact that I literally had to jump into another interview, um, I feel like we could have talked about the Triffids and Love and Bright Landscapes for a very long time. Um, that's the effect that great music great art has on people and it's the effect that somebody like David McComb has on me and on Jonathan as well. Uh, That's a long preamble ramble about this interview. Um, I hope that uh, it's not been too much but I just want to stress that this is like it's a rare aspect that I sit down and do an interview and feel emotional and feel uh, uh you know, I feel emotional all the time, but I mean, feel emotional to the point that I feel like I'm almost to the point of crying. And that's what I felt with this particular interview. Not because it made me sad, but because of the, 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 the strength in culture and the strength in artistry that David had as a person. And most importantly, the strength that the Triffids had in supporting him and he did in supporting uh, his bandmates too. Enjoy this discussion. Enjoy this film. Here's a little bit of the trailer. I'm going to close this particular um, interview with one of my favorite uh, Triffid songs as well. Usually I would do a bit of a preamble at the end or post-ramble, I guess, is the best way of putting it. But nonetheless, I'll do that right here while I've got you. The curb.com.au for other interviews, especially that one with Eric Thompson. Patreon.com forward slash the curb AU to help keep the site independent. Follow us on social media as well if you'd like to do that. 
most importantly, head out and watch Live and Bright Landscapes if you can safely do that. In Perth, there are a couple of um, screenings that are taking place with music, uh, live music uh, associated with it. On the 9th of September, that one is sold out. On the 11th of September, there are tickets still available. That's at uh, lunapalace.com.au to go and pick up tickets. Um, make sure to do that. These songs are something else in person. All right, guys, here's the interview with Jonathan Alley. Human voice uh, backed by some sort of rhythmic noise where words and music of any kind made that to me as a song. There's a lot of great Australian songwriters, but he's certainly amongst the best that this country's produced in the last 30 years. I never considered myself particularly Australian at all. You know, I just thought I'd just come from this bland suburb in Perth. You just see those songs, see them and feel them and smell them. Australian records did not have atmosphere no attempt to set lyrics or the stories of the songs against an atmospheric backing. I saw someone who was really strong and really tender at the same time. His way of looking at things was his own. There was nothing generic about him. I'll just lay it out first of all. Like I'm a huge Triffords fan, and um, mm -hmm. I did an interview with um, a director years ago about um, uh, Steve Kilby, and um, I mentioned them at the end of the interview. I was like, "Geez, why hasn't somebody done something on the Triffords?" And mm. they're like, "Oh, look, you know, I know that there's a documentary in the process." Um, so, you know, just keep your eyes out. And this was years ago. And I've been, every single year I've been looking at the upcoming films. I'm like, when is this film coming out? When is this film coming out? This has right. taken so long. <laughs> but then I watch the film and I understand why. Yeah. Ah, right. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So what's the process been like for the, uh, over the time of making this? Well, it's been a mixture of intuition and planning um, that I think is, is probably, uh, only appropriate you know with with someone like David I think you know you we, we sort of had a I guess a list of people we, we knew we, we had to talk to um, his, his parents his brothers um, obviously the other Triffids um, but there were other people who were non-musical people that we discovered through speaking to people close to him uh, for example, we spent a couple of days on the New South Wales South Coast with the Triff Adult Manager, Sally Collins, who we did two interview sessions with her. Now, her sessions were great, and obviously you've seen the film, so she, you know she, you know she's still on the cut. But through just talking to her just casually, she mentioned people to us that you're only going to find out about through sitting down and having a chat with... Um, you know, people who are sort of between the cracks, who are non-musical friends, who were very, very close to David as people. Um, someone like Bill Dunbar in Sydney, who's not a, you know, he's not a music guy, but he was one of David's closest friends. 
and gave us a great interview would be a good example of that. So where, you know, David's, I, I suppose I would encapsulate my entire approach to it as sort of intuitive and sort of gut instinct, um, whereas Dave's own approach to his own writing was incredibly intuitive and, and about gut instinct and the Triffitt's interpretations of his music were overtly intuitive and, and the songs were all the better for it. Um, I I spent a long time <laughs> basically because so to get to the to sort of get to the crux of your question, why did it take so long? You know, um, <laughs> I spent a long time knowing what I didn't want and that was a by the numbers rock doc. You know, you're sitting behind the studio desk listening to a guy push a fader up and go, hey, listen to the drum sound we got on this track. I, I just did not want that. Um, and, and I didn't want a lot of people describing things that had happened, you know, just as talking heads on camera. I knew I didn't want that. It took me a long time to intuit what I did want because I didn't see that I had the tools, the aesthetic kind of assets in front of me to achieve that. And when certain things coalesced, in the last few years, which would really, when I say the last few years, I would say 2017 to 2020, uh, and those things would be uh, the fact that we discovered a tranche of letters that John, uh, that John and David McComb had written to one another um, through the 80s and 90s that were a private correspondence, but they were released to us by the family. <laughs> Sorry, excuse me. Uh, John has now sadly passed away as well. Um, so they were passed on to us by the family, and I think there's material in those letters that's that's quite personal and quite reflective of where David was at, um, you know, as a person. Uh, on top of that, you had the publication of the poetry through Fremantle Arts Press. Uh, you know, I knew that I had to involve the poems in the film in some way, but it would be lazy to lean on them too much, but it also would be quite remiss not to include them. But I needed to find the best way, and then we were interviewing DBC Pierre for the film in, in England, and I was listening to his voice on my headphones, and a little voice just said, "This is the guy to read the poems," and he was into it. He spent one day of 2017 in Australia, and uh, we we fingered him for that one day, and he spent a day recording with us in, in Sydney, you know, before he took off again. Um, you know, and he, he was the person to do it because he just had this incredible, um, again, intuitive empathy to the work rather than wanting to sound like David would have sounded. We wanted someone who sounded completely different and yet also somebody who, um, you know, could speak with, as, as I say, empathy to, to the content of the letters and the poems. Uh, so all those things basically coalesced to, to form the way to bring the film to a screen without it becoming what I didn't want, which was something very by the numbers. Yeah. And it's not by the numbers at all. The the archival footage, the the slides, the the footage mm. of um you know, the the music being filmed at in concerts and things like that all just brings it to life and fills it with this energy that is it's tangible like it's uh, you know it's a it's a really powerful film in a lot of ways and I, and I say that not as not just as somebody who is a Triffids fan but somebody who enjoys music documentaries because because of the um the manner that they invite you to into 
you know, the musician's world. There's There's been countless mm. documentaries that I've watched about bands or, or singers who I've never known about and uh, have suddenly found my new favourite band. And I think that this is the kind of film that will do that for people who aren't familiar with the Triffids, um, which, you know... It, in today's day and age, it feels like a surprise that there are still people who are not familiar with the Triffids, but... Um, of course there are. Yeah, of course there are, yeah. And one of the things which I found really surprising um, was how much people were kind of not familiar with the Triffids when they were still around. Even though they were big, they weren't kind of having the impact with um, band labels and stuff like that that they should have. Mm. Um what were the kind of surprises that you found along the way? I understand that, you, I mean, you've, your career as somebody who's worked alongside and, and been familiar with David's work, of course, interviewing him, uh, you'd be intimate with their knowledge and the, the history of them. But were there any surprises that came up as you were making the film? Oh, lots. I mean, inevitably, you know, the, the, del- the deeper you delve into the person behind the, you know, the work... You know, you're not just analysing the work. You're finding out about what's really driving the person behind them. So for someone who's as enigmatic as Dave, um, then inevitably there are surprises. I personally think that my major surprise, really, my major revelation was that someone so driven and someone so determined ended up getting quite lost um, you know, he, he was on a certain trajectory and that was to be successful with his songwriting and the the vehicle for that success would, would be the work that the Triffids did on those songs. And the last two records they made, as good as they are, and some of his best songwriting is on those records, on Callinger and The Black Swan, in retrospect, and this probably didn't feel that way at the time, but in retrospect, there's a sort of feeling that things are starting to unravel. And after that, he, you know, he spends time in London trying to find this music publishing deal and trying to find a solo deal. Spends two years doing that with no real success. I mean, you know, a few good singles, but you know, some good demos, but you know, he didn't get a record out of it. He didn't get a record deal. Um, you know, then he, he spent time recording kind of um, as a satellite member of the Black Eyed Susans. Um, and then he, he concentrated again on trying to make a, a success of a solo record. But again, that that came unstuck because of, of the health issues that cropped up. You know, he just seemed to sort of, after having this really golden run through the early to mid-80s, critically anyway, he really seemed to sort of run up against a few walls through several circumstances. And I, I don't think he really had the kind of... He didn't seem to have the kind of tools to deal with those. And and uh, it's, it's quite saddening. You know, and I... Yeah, I mean, some of it's just happenstance. It's, it's unfortunate circumstance. And some of it is, um, you know, to do with things like fashion. Um, which is forever fickle. Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, he was just—he was just so lucky, but he was also so unlucky in so many ways. Yeah. So yeah. The, the 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 fact that he sort of got quite lost um, was was a surprise. Also, just the fact that he seemed to be so many different people to so many different people. He, the, you've seen the film, so you know that in the first few minutes, there's that interview where his childhood friend Julian Douglas Smith says. 
well, what is the real Dave McComb? That's an open door. And then Graham says, well, he had to be about five different people to be happy. Mm. And I, I think there's really something to that. You know, he, he had to be so many different people to different people around him. And I think that must have become quite wearing after a while. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, he had to be... I think there was he, he put himself under an enormous amount of pressure to yeah. continue to to work. Um, and I think that must have been, in ways, personally quite wearing. Um, I also found his humour really surprising. I mean, I knew he was funny. Um, and, you know, having met him, I knew how, how black his sense of humour could be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, when he got ill, it was really black, you know, um, it was deeply darkly black and yeah and uh it, it it that that element surprised me certainly yeah there, there was there's a moment which i find really fascinating as somebody who does a lot of interviews like the one that i'm mm. doing right now i i find it really interesting seeing that the the different aspects of david here and there is an interview that you show where you know somebody asks him about the Triffids being nice people, and he's like, "What?" <laughs> you know, and yeah. it's the the presentation that um, people who are being interviewed give to the person that is doing the interview is completely different from who they are as a band and, and different things mm-hmm. like that. Um, that I found really interesting and surprising. What was the kind of as somebody who did interview him? What was the mm. difference between the person you interviewed and the person that you're collating uh, their life into a film about? Well, there's a lot to that. First off, I think in, in broad terms, the, the David you saw in interviews was at once completely different from the person um, because when David is being interviewed in general, he quite obviously and you know, and quite understandably, he tends to be talking about the record he's got out. Mm, yeah, you know he's well. The Triffids have got a new album, David. Tell us about this album, Born Sandy Devotional. Well, you know, so he's going to talk about the record, and of course he is. Or he, the other thing he does, and very astutely, is talk about other people's work um, and the way it's influenced him. And, and a lot of that's very surprising because his taste was so eclectic. You know, that this is somebody that read Flannery O'Connor and Rilke, but also loved Roxanne Chante and Prince and trashy late night television. You know, there's no highbrow, there's no lowbrow, there's just connection. And I think that's a really important element of how Dave sort of saw things. So he talked about a lot of external inspiration and he talked a lot lot about his own music. It's very, very rare, though, that he talks about where he is personally because he's just a very private man, and that's totally fair. But the one place where this does come up, I think he's being interviewed by... Oh, now, what did they call 6RTR in Perth in the 80s? Is it 6UVS? I think he's being interviewed on 6UVS. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and he just says, oh, look, you know, um, I'm, I'm sick to death of critics trying to sort of delve into my personal life to sort of to interpret how that is, is being played out in the songs. You know, it's, it's just gone too far because um, I, I realise that songs are actually just these constructions that can can come from all manner of different places, but critics don't seem to understand that. They seem to take everything too literally. (laughs) And and I think that really annoyed him when people took his songs too literally because, let's face it, they're so enigmatic and kind of metaphorical. You'd be be an idiot to take them literally. Um, But it seems in the 80s of all all eras, of course, you know, if you were ever going to take something too literally, it was probably in the 80s. (laughs) Um, 
<laughs> you know, people obviously did. You know, people thought Wide Open Road was actually about a road, which is pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know. So there's that side of him. I, I think, you know, he, um, to, to come down to my own interview with him, it, it didn't last very long because I was young. I was only 23. And it was for Love of Will, the solo album. And the record company hadn't sent me the record. Um, so I was sort of out on a limb trying to sort of fudge questions about things that I didn't really know as much about as I should have. And David being the sharp individual that he was, picked that, you know, up just like that. Um, and, I, I, you know, at the end of the interview, we, we were a little more relaxed and we sort of found some common ground talking about hip-hop music and Al Green. But, you know, he could tell that I really, you know, I hadn't heard the record, barring maybe two tracks, you know, that I had heard because they were out of singles. Um, and, I, and I'm still annoyed that I, <laughs> I still don't own Love of Will. And like a lot of people, I'd really like to own Love of Will, and I don't. Um, <laughs> so it's a pretty weird 20 minutes of our lives in that, you know, he meets this young guy who should have done his homework and hadn't. And um, I walk away going, oh, gee, that should have gone better. You know, I really respect that person. I, I could tell there was a lot more that I wanted to be able to ask him but couldn't. And we, you know, he walks away off into the future, and I walk away off into the future. Neither of us have got any idea that in five years later he's going to be gone. That I'm going to go and meet his parents. I'm going to go to the houses he lived in as a child. I'm going to meet his close friends. I'm going to read private postcards and letters that he sent to people. Neither of us have any idea of this, and that's really strange to me. You know, that he just sort of walked off and I never saw him again. And yet he's been this constant in my life, you know, for the last sort of 13 years. Yeah. I, I want you know, to touch I, on that. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, you keep going. Yeah. Oh, it's like I literally hear his voice every day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> read things he said every day. It's like he's there. But of course he's not. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I want to touch on that in a moment, but I also want to ask, um, because it's something that I've experienced myself as doing interviews. I interviewed Damien Hill, the actor, and about three weeks before he died, and that oh, left wow. a bit of a, a, a strange feeling for me. Of um, course it would. Yeah. yeah, especially because it's somebody who you look up to, you respect, just like you did with David. Um, mm. If you don't mind me asking, how did you feel... Uh, when he did pass away, what was your experience knowing that you spent time talking with him? Oh, look, um, I when he died, I hadn't seen him for a number of years, and mm. I didn't know him well. I, I didn't yeah. know him. I didn't know Dave. I'd met him, but I didn't know him. Um, you know, and I'd seen him perform, but I, I certainly was not, you know, um, someone with a you know a, a kind of meaningful relationship with him in any way. But having having said that. Um, I did know that he had had these health challenges and I also knew that I hadn't sort of seen him either performing or just seen him around for a long time. And so I sort of had wondered what had been going, you know, how had how he'd been travelling. So when as actually a work colleague of mine rang me from downstairs at the office and went, oh, my God, did you hear about Dave McCann? Um And, of course, the first thing I just said was, oh, did he die? You know, because it was um, it was a shock that I'd anticipated. You know, it was something that a lot of people actually Al was saying to me when when I interviewed Al McDonald when when Jill Burt came home and told him the news in 1999. His first 
reaction was, oh, well, that was going to happen, wasn't it? You know, um, it was awful. It was a terrible tragedy. Of course it was, but it was something that I think some people saw coming. And, and yeah, to, to me, uh, it was just very saddening. And, um, you know, I think the great tragedy when someone like David dies is that you're never again going to know what they thought. You know, it's like you're never going to read another poem. There's going to be no more poems. There's going to be no more songs. There's going to be no more opinions. You know, there's going to be no more of that mind. You know, like you've got lots of great stuff that he left and, you know, all the records, there's no bad record, which you can't say about most people. You know, whether it's Triffids or Black Eyed Seasons or Dave McCann's solo, there's no bad record. You can't say that about a lot of people. And, you know, the, the, the poetry is another world um, of its own and, and deserves, you know, the recognition that it has been achieving. And that's, you know, all, all power to Fremantle Arts Press for putting out that volume of poetry and the work that Niall Lucy and Chris Coffram did to, to produce it. Um, but again, it, it's finite. You know, it finishes in 1999 because after 1999, he's not here. And it's, you know, I, I that is the other thing I would say that, when you um, consider what he could have done, it's really sad. You know, could he have written a film screenplay? Yeah. Um, could he have written a novel? He probably would have done. Um, he may have written a stage play. He he definitely had a humorous book of letters in him, which I just think would have been, you know, uproarious. Uh, you know, I, I think there are so many things he could have done that, we'll now never see and that, that's another element of the tragedy yeah yeah thank you for that i, I appreciate that that response there i'm curious about as you're saying you know living with his voice in your mind um mm. i i listen to the, the triffids you know pretty much every week they're they're in my rotation yeah. consistently right. um right and yeah. so their songs are in my mind consistently and they inform mm -hmm. like my encounter yep. with the Triffids was through Born Tandy Devotional, like a lot of people, and that helped mm -hmm. um, frame my relationship with living in Perth, living in Western Australia, um, and mm -hmm. understanding this state a little bit more. I'm curious Were for you. Were you born there? Uh, yes. I, yeah, I'm a Perth oh, born. Oh, you were. Okay. Yep, yep. Yeah. And so I, um, you know, I've always had a bit of a conflicted relationship with Australia, with Western Australia and things like that. Um, as, oh, sure. As I think that um, David did as well. And that that feeds into his music in in some regards whether he's actually mm. talking about it explicitly or just kind of talking about what goes on in the world in australia mm. um i'm curious for you what your experience is having his voice having his music in your mind what what does that do to your day-to-day -day life i will yeah uh this it's is a complex whole... question i'm sorry <laughs> no it's a very good question um it's you're probably the only interviewer who's asked me that question, and I, and I actually think it's the question because, um, to me, um, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to make the film was to try and distill the ever-evolving relationship the human mind and the human heart can have with this body of work um, because it's ever-changing. It's ever-evolving. Um, and once once it's got you it's sort of got you for life this canon of work because it's ever evolving it's got something for you at every stage of your life this canon of work and your reaction to 
a piece of music, or one of his pieces of music. Um, and you have to give the Triffids credit here too um, because of the way that they interpreted his songs. Um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a world of ever-opening doors. You know, you open one door, there's five more doors. You go through one of them, there's ten more doors to the imagination. You'll see different images and have different feelings uh, in a number of different ways with a number of different songs. I mean, Stolen Property is a magnificent example of this. It's so powerful, and sometimes it can be so uplifting. Other times it can be so sad. And then you'll hear a little line in it every now and again. Like, I mean, the, the classic one is when people listen to that song, they know that line, an aphorism for every occasion. And then you think, well, what's he really getting at? Like, who's got an aphorism for every occasion? And what's he really saying about that person? And that's just one line in one song in the whole canon. And you can think about that line in so many different ways, right? And that's just that tiny microcosmic example. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's... Whereas other people, I mean, I think with Dylan's writing, you can probably have that ever-evolving relationship, but it's generally a pretty rare thing. Maybe Leonard Cohen's another one. Um, you know, but but overall, it's 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 a pretty rare thing in music. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons that the work continues to have this renaissance is that we live in really fickle times. I mean, culture doesn't have a shelf life anymore, unless it's some mega marketed binge watch thing you watch on Netflix. You know, art is really hard to to find and latch onto and kind of have a relationship with. It's there, it's being made, but you've got to go through all these different rabbit holes to find it. And music isn't a cultural event anymore. It's just more fucking content, Yeah. right? Yeah. It's a stream, next. Oh, it's, it's being synced to an ad. Oh, it's that ad with the video with the guys on the exercise mill. Oh, look, they're clever, aren't they? Or look, they got synced to an underwear ad and there are women on, you know, roller skates. Uh-huh. You know, and it's just, it's just sort of part of this fucking hurricane of content that whirls around your ears whereas with something like David's canon it speaks to people's deeper core of who they are as a person and, and once you're hooked you can't really dismiss that experience as you obviously understand yeah um, and I think um, it's it's so at odds with the kind of, of cultural environment that we find ourselves in now that people kind of latch onto it um, mm. for for the best reasons and that is that that it makes them think about what it is to be a person yeah yeah and and that that's it exactly it makes it makes me reconsider it consistently and and i've been sitting with his music for you know i i came to it later than i probably should have and i wish that i had come to it you know sooner but um <laughs> i've sat with his music for about two decades now you know and yeah and, and when you're an old man and i hope you live to be one yeah you'll probably still be listening to that you know see what i mean that's like it's not gonna you know it's not gonna be that regurgitate i mean i love regurgitator don't get me wrong but it's yeah. not gonna be that regurgitator album you listen to in 1997 which was sort of it and yep. then you listen to it now and it's like yeah that was a good record back in 1997 that was cool for the time it was fun and now people have moved on, you know. But don't don't get me wrong. Like I love those guys. They're yeah, great yeah. great live band and made great records. And you know, 
there's any what I'm getting at is sometimes culture just makes complete sense in the moment it's in and then the culture moves on whereas other things just stay forever and David's stuff stays forever yeah one of the the great thrills for me has been able to be see see uh the Triffids perform live if mm. essentially with the the rotating um catalog of, mm. of different mm-hmm. voices and stuff like that um Rob Snarsky was just fantastic in in one of the 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 concerts that I went to and I'm kicking myself mm-hmm. that I didn't go to one that Gareth Lydiard was at as well. Um, oh, you know. I saw that. <laughs> yeah. I saw Gareth sing stolen property in field of glass. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've watched the YouTube video of it and it, and it hits yeah. hard. It hits hard. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, it would. What is it for you having attended these kinds of concerts? Mm. Um, mm-hmm. What does it do to you to hear the Triffid songs sung by somebody that's not david um because to me it, it says it, it transitions it into a whole different realm like it is it is more than just the triffids it's it's his words it highlights the power of his words uh and reinforces the importance of his own voice as well well it, yeah um there's a very specific sense of those songs really being free brought to life like you could almost reach out and touch them when and it's the truckload of sky um, um, show is the same actually if you mm. get to see that um, you know what Truckload of Sky yeah, is? Yeah I do yeah, yeah, yeah right yeah. right so I, having only seen that show once and seen the Triffids without Dave four times I did have a similar feeling is that they've been brought out and led into the air and they're they're sort of floating around and you can almost touch them it's that same feeling Um it's always interesting to hear other people's interpretations of, of the songs and, you know, to do them justice in their own way. Like, um, as you were saying, Gareth Lydiard um, doing Stolen Property or Field of Glass, it's an innately powerful experience. Um, it's really interesting to hear other interpretations, like there's a Black Eyed Susan song called Ocean of You, which Dave wrote for Rob Snarsky to sing. And... That's on, it's on. I think it's on the very first EP. It's and, it, and then it was on the compilation of all the EPs. Welcome, stranger. Yeah, I've got um, that. Love that. Listening to that too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when I saw Truckload of Sky, they did a completely different arrangement of that song with Angie Hart singing it, who used to be in Frente, and it was this. It was like listening to Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska record with sort of smatterings of suicide, Alan Vega, Marty Rev, was really kind of late night, two in the morning, film noir, down in a lonely street atmosphere, and totally different arrangement of that song, and it just worked superbly. You know, I really had to hand it to them that they hadn't just gone through the motions that given that song this kind of extra life in a way that I think Dave would have just loved because he loved, you know, Springsteen's Nebraska record and he loved suicide. Um, and the way Angie sang it was just sensational. But again, it's, it was that feeling of, you know, okay, so you have that atmosphere of that sort of date, late night sort of film noir vibe to it that's not on the original recording. And yet you hear Angie singing, I'm out of my depth in an ocean of you. You transpose that line onto the atmosphere, the new atmosphere that they created in that song. It still works. 
but again, it's that ever-evolving, you know, like there's a sort of sense of, of dark yearning in the original, whereas this one there was this sort of utter sort of resignation, you know. Um, it, it was a totally different experience of that song, and yet the song still sort of lived in that same way that you could almost reach out and touch it. Um, how I've seen the Triffids do that show four times. Um, I remember seeing Melanie Oxley in Sydney sing I Want to Conquer You from the Love of Will record, and that was stunning. I remember seeing uh, Mick Harvey do Kelly's Blues in Perth, and that was um, a real surprise. Um, and also Mick's interpretation of the Seabirds, I think that is a really difficult song for anybody to sing, and I think it's one of David's greatest lyrics. Um, as Graham says in the film, it's like a short story, you know, in three minutes of, of music, and there's not there's nothing out of place in it. Absolutely every line, every piece of music that accompanies the words makes complete sense. Um, and it's a really difficult song to sing, just phrasing-wise, as a vocalist. And um, Mick actually really nails it. Um, if you go back and watch that one online, he really knows how to sing that song and get inside it. And I think that's that's the challenge with, I mean, it's a pretty big challenge to get up and sing those songs. And I think that the vocalists that really do it best are the ones that really know how to sort of get inside what those songs are at this, again, kind of intuitive level. Um, and I think, yeah, Mick nailing the Seabirds in the way that he did and Melanie nailing I Want to Conk You in the way that she did in Sydney are really good examples of that. Yeah. Well, I, I like the the song that you choose to close the film on um, and the Diving Bell do a, a, a stunning cover of mm-hmm. it. Um, it just kind of broke me in that moment where, you know, oh. uh, in a way which I didn't expect. Um, that, that song is mm-hmm. always a, a powerful song, um, but that particular cover in itself was just overwhelming in a way and i've listened to it a few times after watching the film and i've just been like gosh it it these songs will live on for you know beyond our lives for sure because of their their power have you got the have you got the, the album that's off i don't and i'm i'm going to <laughs> well just give me your address i'll send you one uh thank you i appreciate that uh, i yeah it's the work that is there is just it's powerful it's really good so well the story behind that was that we recorded, we own that recording. We, the, the, the Diving Bell was fronted by a lovely um, German woman named Claudia Schneider who we were working with. Um, we, we used to work at a film distributor called Madman and she was working at Madman as well. And we just got to know her and we asked the Diving Bell to play our benefit show at the Corner Hotel here in Melbourne. And that song went down an absolute treat when they played it um so we selected several recordings from that show to be part of our deep in a dream album which you can still buy off our website and you can still get on Bandcamp. um and we had originally wanted to um use save what you can as the credits and for certain contractual or record company related reasons we weren't actually able to do that although we use it elsewhere in the film so it seemed a really logical way of of finishing the film up Um, so it was sort of a happy accident the use of that song 
um, it works an absolute treat. Um, I mean, we we do have the Triffids version with Gilbert as a as a kind of forerunner to it, just a few minutes earlier at the end of the film, and then then we hit the audience with that. It um, yeah, uh, having done a, a friends and film, a friends and family screening of the film at Acme here in Melbourne, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, and, and seeing the power of that. Um, you know, with the full sound system and with the 5.1 mix and seeing how it affected the audience. Um, I'm, I'm quite happy to say that I think we got that right. Yeah, I, I agree there for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's mm. look, you, you've created a really powerful film and coming back to what I was saying before, I think that people who aren't familiar with the Triffids will still uh, get so much from this because it's it's more than just the music. It is about an artist who... Uh, whose life was taken too soon, but it's also about the people yeah. who lift him up and support him. So, yeah, you know, well, very much so. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, thank you for that. Thing yeah. about, well, you've just, I know you need to get going. But oh, no, no, no. No, you a, keep going, yeah. <laughs> you've struck on a really interesting point there, is that I think David actually was, had, was such a kind man <clears throat> and such a um, giving person that he actually really inspired people to help him. You know, that if, if Dave needed you to, you know, lend you, lend, if he, he, you, uh, if he needed you to lend you, um, you know, his four-track, you'd, you'd always say yes. Or, you know, he needed uh, to borrow an amp or he needed a musician to, to fill in for a show or, you know, he needed you to help him write a song. You know, people wouldn't say no because it was him. Um, he had this network of people around him. There was in the Triffids family, in the sort of wider Triffids family, there's an enormous amount of goodwill and generosity. They're really kind people. They're really decent people, and they're people you want to spend time with. Um, and it's been a real pleasure getting to know some of them. You know, because I, I think that actually, you know, you, you just learn a lot about a person by the company they keep. You know, you really do. And I think that the fact that they're just such fundamentally decent, good people, um, I think speaks volumes about him. Uh, I really do. Yeah. Well, that, that's some, one of the things which I found really powerful is is what mm. he saw in people who um, were inexperienced in the, the instruments that he chose them for. You know, mm. I've only had a couple of months' experience with this. Doesn't matter. I see something in you, and I and I want you as part of the band. And that in itself shows the trust yeah. and um, the vision that he had as an as an artist. And that I found really yeah. powerful. Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, again, there's two sides to it, and that you know, there's that sort of he he picked people like Jill, who couldn't really play keyboards, or Graham, who was a very advanced musician, but who had been playing the actual specifically the pedal steel for you know for not that long because he knew they could play intuitively yeah and and that's what makes the Triffids great and that's why when they come up against the kind of one-dimensional muggle world for one of a better term of the music industry where you have a producer who says no you've got to do it this way or a label that says no it has to sound like this we have to have gated reverb on the drums or it won't get on the radio you know that's where you know, his kind of artistic approach ran up against problems because the industry machine couldn't understand the sort of um, intuitive understanding he had of his own music and what those songs could do. Yeah, yeah. He was just way ahead of everybody, basically. Oh, very you know, much like, so, uh, yeah. You know, 
if someone couldn't hear something in 1989, well, maybe they can hear it now, and I hope they can. Yeah, I, I think so too. And certainly this mm. film will help encourage that, that, that new audience, I hope. Um, yeah, look, I've, I've taken up so much of your time, and I've really enjoyed this well, conversation away, a lot. Thank you <laughs> so much for this, Jonathan. It's, it's actually been <laughs> Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply.